needed. Good morning. It's about 15 years ago this weekend that we began our church. Not exactly, I think it was late September, but somewhere between mid-September and uh, early October, we had our first Sunday of worship for this church. There's a country song that's making the rounds by dirt. It's uh, been played frequently on Glade devices. Uh, and it's largely because of our eldest daughter who's heading off to college. But uh, one of the refrains from this song, By Dirt, is it, is, uh, it all goes by so fast. And it does. It really goes by fast. Uh, Fifteen years ago, uh, we were at Alexandria Country Day School. We backed up our uh, van owned by one of our parishioners. Everything fit in a minivan and unloaded everything and rolled it out and packed it up. Thankfully, we've had the opportunity to actually buy dirt and with some dirt, also a building. So thank goodness that those days are, are behind. Uh, and the point of the song is, you know, it all goes by so fast, so invest in a place, put down some roots, and we have. And time does go by very, very quickly. Uh, when we began, our, our, uh, we had just welcomed our third born into the world. You can ask me about the wisdom of starting a church with a uh, less than a month a year old child after the service, uh, but our, our youngest, our oldest was four, now a freshman in college. Uh, 15 years, gone like that. And I'm feeling just a touch nostalgic because I think we're in a little bit of a new season in the life of, of this church. By my math, it's taken uh, 15 years to find a building, uh, to buy some dirt. I figure I've got about 15 years left in my career. I don't plan on kicking the bucket at 65, but I figure I'm 50 years old. But by 65, I'll be ready, and you'll probably be ready for something new. Um, so I have 15 years to find a church, 15 years to do something with it. And uh, someone asked me at some point in time, when is it, when, when can you repeat a sermon? <laughs> 15 years. <laughs> That's the answer, 15 years. Uh, and so when I began the church, I, I drafted a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark and we're going to retread that same territory. So you can dust off your notes from 15 years ago. And uh, I'm just curious, who was here 15 years ago, first service? I see a couple of hands. Sorry, repeat. Uh, <laughs> and my motivation then was uh, you know, to reintroduce ourselves or to reconsider Jesus. Uh, and obviously that's the theme of every book of the Bible. Uh, but it's especially the theme of this, uh, of Mark's gospel. So that's what we're going to do. Over these next weeks, we're going to reintroduce, reconsider, think about Jesus. So every Sunday, we'll consider one phrase, one identifying characteristic. He is identified as the friend of sinners, uh, Jesus the one with compassion, Jesus the one with authority. And as Mark begins his gospel, he's, Jesus is introduced First, he's given, uh, it describes his, his title or relationship. This is my beloved son. 
And secondly, this passage gives us a word of affirmation of his activity. With him, I am well pleased. And those are going to be the two things that we think about this morning. What does it mean? What's the Bible mean when it says, this is my beloved son? And with him, I am well pleased. So please turn in your gospel, in your service leaflet to Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news. voice came from heaven after the baptism. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So that first phrase, my beloved son. So I have a picture on my uh, desk. It's a picture of my dad. He passed away a few years ago. Me uh, and my boys, my two boys. And uh, you can't see the picture, so you'll have to just trust me. There's a similar look to all all the glades. Um, We all look similar. Uh, Thankfully, none of my children inherited my chin, but I came by my chin naturally through my dad. Uh, We we all stand the same way. We have the same type of posture. In this picture, we happen to be doing the same things. We're out in Linden at a a little farmhouse, and we all have our bows and arrows. My dad was an archer, and he bow hunted, and he taught the boys. I'm a terrible shot. Uh, I've given up that a long time ago, but my boys are, are... decent. At least they don't endanger anyone around them when they pick up a a bow. So there's some similarities. uh, Some further there's some affection. Now we weren't a huggy family. We're not there's not there's no hugging in this picture but you can see some obvious signs of affection that uh, you know some fondness respect from one generation to the generation above and some pride in the generation above to that below. When the Bible says that this is, when God says, this is my son, this is my beloved son, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that there's some sort of biological connection between God the Father, God the Son, like there's a biological connection between my father and me and my, me and my boys. That's not what the Bible means. What it means is that there is a similar uh, similarity. They're the same stuff. My DNA comes from my dad. My DNA is in my boys. Like they are of the same essence, same stuff. Further, there's the same affection. As a father loves a son, so that the son loves a father. That's the same way that the first person of the Trinity uh, loves the second person of the Trinity and vice versa. Now, the Bible uses many ways to describe the relation, to describe Jesus. He's described as the Word of God. He is described as the image of God. But it's this image that Jesus is the Son that I think is the most common. You can't make it through a worship service without being, uh, without having the same phrase introduced time and time again. Now, Anne chose the music with the, this um, subject in mind. So he's saying about the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, our gospel of him. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. So yeah, we, we, we stack the deck a little bit, but I guarantee you go to any church and you're going to have a hard time making it through any one service without hearing this, that Jesus is the son, the beloved son, the unique son, the one and only son, as we say in our creeds. He is God of God, light of light, true God from true God. He is the beloved son. And that's how Mark begins his gospel. He begins his gospel by giving away the punchline at the front. Who is this? This is the son. This is the one and only son. This is God in the flesh here for you. 
Now, I think that's interesting. Um, if you've read Romeo and Juliet or seen the play, you know that uh, you know, it's one of the most popular tragedies of all time. Uh, but there's no surprise. Because the narrator, right as the play begins, he tells you what's going to happen. He says, these two guys, gals, this guy and this gal, they're going to die. These star-crossed lovers, it's not going to end well. Hey, there may be some good moments. There may be some laughter. But don't get the wrong impression. It's not going to end well. And it doesn't take away from the drama of the story. It doesn't take away from the enjoyment. But you know the end at the beginning. And, and the gospel writer Mark is doing the same thing. He's telling you the end right at the beginning. Because after this chapter, the, the, the story comes down with a bump. Right? As, as this gospel begins, we're given God's perspective. The heavens open up. There's a voice uh, from heaven. There's a, a dove descending. As it's, it's as if it's the, the narrator is pulling back the curtains and saying, look, this is God's assessment of this man, Jesus, the beloved son. And from that point forward, Mark chapter 2, Jesus is interacting with mundane, uh, unimpressive uh, men and women who are often confused, often bewildered, uh, seldom do the right thing. But the gospel begins on this note. Despite the confusion, despite the sadness, despite the, the things that you, this man does, this man Jesus does that you don't expect him to do, nonetheless, this man is a son of God. And this has a point of application for you and me. Because we live in those chapters, Mark chapter 2 through 15, where we do not see Jesus as he is. We don't see the exalted son. We see him, uh, the man made a little bit lower than the angels. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews. Uh, our life is full of bewilderment. If God is God, then why does this happen? Etc. And for you who have ever found yourself in that story of Mark chapter 2 through 15, wondering if God is in control, if he is, and what's he doing, then Mark has a good word for you. You know the difference between a comedy and a tragedy? See, a tragedy, you know that all laughter is going to end in sorrow. Right? You can laugh at the, the funny parts of Romeo and Juliet. Don't get the wrong impression. It's going to end in sorrow. A comedy, all sorrow ends in laughter. And by that definition, and that definition only, the Gospels are a comedy. Not that they're full of punchlines, but the Gospels tell us that all sorrow, all bewilderment, is going to end in laughter. That's true for you and me. Why? Because Mark does not intend, the narrator does not intend for you to forget this opening evaluation that this man is the son. And it will go well for the Son, because he is a Son of God, and it will go well for all who trust in him. And so that is the first way that we are introduced to Jesus as the beloved Son. Second way we're introduced to, introduced to Jesus, his, his actions are evaluated. With him I am well pleased. So if you're a parent, you have probably had the experience of saying, kid, I love you, but what you're doing frustrates me. I'm not, I'm not pleased by your actions. 
And what that parent is saying has been told to me and I've told it to my children. What, what that parent is saying, look, kid, you're, you're bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and I will always love you, but you, you, your decisions are driving me crazy. On the flip side, you know, I reference our sending our first kid off to college, and both my wife and I have said we are just so pleased for her. We always love her, we always love our children, but we're pleased. Why? Because she's making decisions that seem like they're the right decisions. That's not always been the case for all of our children, but for this moment, we're pleased. Now the question I want to consider is, why is the father pleased? What about this action, Jesus being baptized? Because Jesus did some pretty remarkable things. You know, he calmed the storms, he, he raised the dead. You never hear this voice of affirmation, you never hear God saying, ah, that a boy, but you hear it here. What, why in the baptism does God choose that moment to say, that's my boy. With him I'm pleased. Just a quick consideration of what baptism meant. The gospel tells us that all the broken people were coming out to the river Jordan. All the sinners, right? All, no one who had their act together. That would include everybody, but the, only the people who admitted it. Only the people who knew they had something going wrong in their life. Only the people who were humble. Only the people who knew that they weren't clean came out to the Jordan in order to be washed. And that's part of what baptism stood, stands for, right? They were washed in the Jordan River. Washed of the dirt. And in order to get a bath, you got to know you're dirty. So Jesus comes to the Jordan River and he's baptized. And if you know anything about Jesus, you probably know one, one of two things. First, you probably know that Christians believe he is a son. And the second thing you probably know is Christians believe that he didn't have any dirt on him. He was without sin. So why the baptism? Why, why did Jesus begin his ministry by doing something that was for sinners? And what the good theologians tell us is that Jesus was not cleansed or baptized or washed for his own sins. He was cleansed or washed to identify with broken people, to identify with sinners, to all the people who were humble, who knew they were far from God. And this would be a characteristic of Jesus' ministry from day one. He would always be known as a friend of sinners. This man eats and he drinks with sinners. This man, you know the stories. At the end of the life of Christ, this baptism will be replayed. Jesus will refer to his own death, the cross, as a type of baptism. His disciples, he'll tell his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to? But what he means is, can you, can you go to the cross that I'm about to go to? He referred to his death as a baptism. And at, the, at, at his death, many of the things that are found here in the opening chapters are repeated. There's a tearing. Here the, the, the heavens were torn. There 
at the moment of his death at that baptism, a curtain was torn. Here, there's a voice from heaven, my son, my beloved son. There, it will be a centurion, a Roman guard who says, that man, truly, that man was the son, the son of God. See, Jesus takes his place with sinners. He says, I'm with the broken. I'm with all those who don't have their act together. And then he takes his place for sinners on the cross. And he dies that we might be saved. It's the healthy who need a doctor. It's the lost who need finding. And it's that, at that moment, as Jesus undergoes the waters of baptism, as he identifies with all the broken people of the world, it's at that moment that God says, that's my boy. God is one who seeks and saves the lost. Jesus is one who seeks and, save and, seek, seeks and saves the lost. He's the one who gives his life for many. This is the anniversary of 9-11. And of the many images from that day, one that still sticks out in my mind is the images of all the men and women, firefighters and police officers running into the building as others were running out. One giving their life for many. And there's something that resonates with us about those images, about this story of the one who gives their life for many. And don't you wish that you were a little bit more like that more naturally self-sacrificial, we're not, I'm not. Yesterday was my wife's birthday. For my wife's birthday, I got myself a new bicycle. <laughs> I also got her a hat, so. <laughs> we're, we're, most of us are just concerned with ourselves. And that's just the way it is, and we can wish that we were different. But here's the story, point of the story. Thank God that God is not like us. God is not concerned with God. He's concerned with you. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that you and I might have life. And that is how Jesus is introduced to us in these opening chapters. He's introduced as the unique son and the son who identifies with sinners in baptism and then will take the place of sinners on the cross. And so as we think about these next 15 years, what should our church be about? I don't get any points for creativity, but here's what I think our church should be about. Our church should be about lifting up the name of Jesus, who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And then reminding all of us that the true God of true God the only son, the unique son, the beloved son, for us and for our salvation became man and identified with sinners and then he died. He died for you and he died for me. And that is how the gospel begins. Please rise. Let us confess.